Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 11 edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court limited the recovery of a caregiver injury by an Alzheimer's patient to only workers' compensation benefits. Here's what happened in the case of Gregory versus Cott. Bernard Cott contracted with a home health care agency to assist with his 85-year-old wife who had long suffered from Alzheimer's disease. The agency assigned a plaintiff, Carolyn Gregory, to work in the Cott's home. Gregory was trained to care for Alzheimer's patients and had done so in other assignments. She knew they could be violent. Bernard told her his wife, Lorraine, was combative and would bite, kick, scratch, and flail. Gregory's duties included supervising, bathing, dressing, and transporting Lorraine, as well as some housekeeping. In September 2008, Gregory was injured when she tried to restrain Lorraine. Gregory has received workers' compensation for this injury, but she also sued the Cots for negligence and premises liability with a claim against Lorraine for battery. The trial court granted a defense motion for summary judgment. A divided court of appeal affirmed the dismissal, holding that Gregory's claims were barred by the primary assumption of risk doctrine. The California Supreme Court affirmed the dismissal in the case of Gregory v. Cott. The question in this case is whether patients suffering from Alzheimer's disease are liable for injuries they inflict on health care workers hired to care for them at home. California and other jurisdictions have established the rule that Alzheimer's patients are not liable for injuries to caregivers in institutional settings. The California Supreme Court concluded that the same rule applies to in-home caregivers who, like their institutional counterparts, are employed specifically to assist these disabled persons. Those hired to manage a hazardous condition may not sue their clients for injuries caused by the very risks they were retained to confront. This conclusion is consistent with the strong public policy against confining the disabled in institutions. If liability were imposed for caregiver injuries in private homes, but not in hospitals or nursing homes, the incentive for families to institutionalize Alzheimer's sufferers would increase. This case does not preclude liability in situations where caregivers are not warned of a known risk, where defendants otherwise increase the level of risk beyond that inherent in providing care, or where the cause of injury is unrelated to the symptoms of the disease. The dissenting opinion noted that this was a hard case involving sad facts. There can be several situations in which a caregiver will not be covered by workers' compensation. Workers' compensation may not be available, for example, when there is no workers' compensation insurance or when the injured person is an independent contractor. Thus, it may end up under this ruling that the caregiver is barred from suing for injuries and denied workers' comp benefits as well. 
The Court of Appeal limited the definition of what constitutes a labor code section 4558 power press injury that triggers the exception to the workers' compensation exclusivity rules. Here's what happened in the case of Watrous versus Lafille Manufacturing Company. O'Neill Watrous suffered serious injuries while operating a Fen 5F swagging machine in the course and scope of his employment with Lafille Manufacturing Company. Watrous filed a civil complaint against his employer alleging a violation of Labor Code Section 4558, the power press exception to the exclusive remedy of workers' comp. A Fen 5F swagging machine is used to reduce a larger diameter tube to a smaller diameter. The swagging operation uses a process whereby hammers are actuated within the machine and used against dies that change the shape at the end of the tube. The swagging process compresses the metal so that the end of the tube is smaller in diameter, thicker, and stronger than the rest of the tube. The door had been removed from the Fen 5F swagging machine that Watrous was operating. The purpose of the door was for access to change the dies. The door also functions to hold the dies in place while the power press is in operation. There is an opening in the center of the door to feed the material to be swagged. In this case, however, instead of the door, a metal pressure pate was held in place by clamps. Watrous was standing about six feet from the machine and was removing a tube following the swagging process. He was injured when a piece of metal hit him in the eye. His 4558 theory was that the tube he was removing from the swagging machine struck the pressure plate assembly, causing the part to be violently dislodged. Lafille brought its summary judgment motion asserting that the door was not a point of operation guard as a matter of law and required by the statute. The trial court denied the motion for summary judgment and Lafille filed a petition for writ of mandate challenging the order denying its summary judgment motion. The Court of Appeal reversed in the published opinion. Section 4558's exemption applies by the statute's own plain and express terms only to material forming machines utilizing a die. Machines using other types of tools to cut material are not within the statute's application even if they would meet a regulatory agency's definition of power press. The Court of Appeal rejected Watrous's attempt to import the definitions of a power press from general industry safety regulations into Labor Code Section 4558. A writ of mandate issued, directing the trial court to vacate its order denying Lafille's motion for summary judgment and to enter a new and different order granting the summary judgment motion. A WCAB panel decision clarified the application of UR time limits and confirmed that UR is not required for denied body parts. Here's what happened in the case of Chamberlain versus Humphrey and Giacopuzzi Veterinary Hospital. Chamberlain suffered an admitted injury to her low back and other parts while at work. The employer denied injury to her psyche, vision, balance, urology, 
weight gain, brain, and internal organs. Applicants PTP, Dr. Mulliken requested authorization for various treatments, including a one-year extension of a gym membership, follow-ups with a psychiatrist, 16 hours of home health assistance every week, and eight visits of additional chiropractic treatment for neck and back, and more. The state fund submitted some, but not all, of the treatment requests to UR. State Fund did not request a UR with respect to the gym membership, 16 hours of home health assistance per week, and eight sessions of chiropractic treatment. After a trial, the work comp judge made no findings of injury to the disputed body parts. Despite the absence of a findings on injury, the work comp judge also found that defendant's utilization review determination was untimely and concluded that applicant was entitled to the requested medical treatment, including for the denied body parts, such as a follow-up visit with a psychologist and a psychiatrist. In its petition for reconsideration, the state fund contended its UR determination was timely and the work comp judge order of medical treatment for body parts that have not been determined as industrial was improper. The WCAB reversed the order in part in the panel decision of Chamberlain versus Humphrey and Giacopuzzi. Labor Code section 4610G and L states that UR time limits run from the date of the medical treatment recommendation. However, Administrative Director Rule 9792.9B2 clarifies the 14 days run from the claims administrator's receipt of the treatment recommendation. State Fund's UR denial issued 12 days after it received Dr. Mulliken's report and was therefore timely. UR determinations for non-industrial body parts are not relevant since non-industrial treatment recommendations are not subject to UR. The dispute over authorization of these treatment requests were returned to the trial for determination whether the disputed body parts are industrially related. And now our fraud report. A DME company owner has been found guilty by a federal jury of a 10-year, $8.3 million fraud scheme. 43-year-old Olfunki Farojutimi of Carson, California, who is a registered nurse and the former owner of the Lutimi Medical Supply, was convicted. He was found guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, seven counts of healthcare fraud, and one count of money laundering. The evidence showed that Fadjo Timi and others paid cash kickbacks to patient recruiters and physicians for fraudulent prescriptions for DME that the Medicare patients did not actually need. He then used these prescriptions to bill Medicare. Approximately $8.3 million in false and fraudulent claims were submitted and Medicare paid almost $4.3 million on those claims. The case was brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, part of the Healthcare Fraud Prevention and Enforcement Act treatment, or known as HEAT. HEAT is a joint initiative announced in 2009 between the Department of Justice and HHS. 
Since its inception, the strike force has charged more than 1,900 defendants who have collectively billed the Medicare program for more than $6 billion. 37-year-old Matthew Ariaga, a Ventura commercial insurance broker, pleaded guilty to four counts of felony grand theft after embezzling more than $90,000 in premiums. With great hubris, Ariaga continued his criminal activity while out on bail. <clears throat> A Department of Insurance investigation revealed that Ariaga was collecting premium payments for commercial liability policies and failing to place the policies with an insurance company. In some instances, Ariaga would forward funds after his client's policies were canceled due to lack of payment. According to investigators, while out on bail and working under a suspended license, Ariaga continued to embezzle funds from at least two additional victims. Ariaga's bail was revoked after this discovery, and he remained in custody until his conviction. Ariaga is the second suspect to plead guilty to multiple felony charges stemming from an investigation into a wholesale and resale retail commercial insurance agency he co-owned. <clears throat> Last April, 53-year-old David Patrick Clark pleaded guilty to one count of grand theft and has been sentenced to 90 days in jail and five years formal felony probation in order to pay more than $97,000 in restitution. A third suspect, 40-year-old James Fayed III, who worked with Ariaga and Clark, is due in Ventura County Superior Court in September for a preliminary hearing on four felony counts of grand theft by embezzlement. And in regulatory news, the WCAB proposes a repeal of the rules of the court administrator. It has accordingly issued a notice of public hearing regarding proposed amendments to its rules of practice and procedure. The primary purpose of this rulemaking is to repeal the rules of the court administrator and to move the non-duplicative ones into the WCAB's rules with some largely non-substantive changes. These changes are authorized by Assembly Bill 1426, passed in 2011, which eliminated the position of court administrator and deemed the court administrator's regulations to be regulations of the WCAB. The rulemaking also proposes to make largely non-substantive changes to a limited number of existing WCAB rules. A public hearing will start at 10 a.m. on September 17th in the Santa Barbara Room basement level of the Hiram Johnson State Office Building at 455 Golden Gate Avenue in San Francisco. Members of the public may also submit written comment on the proposed rules amendments until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. The Division of Workers' Compensation has also posted an update on improvements for submitting independent medical review records. The Independent Medical Review Organization, Maximus Federal Services, is now including with each notice of assignment and request for information a new cover sheet with barcodes. This barcoded sheet will help ensure that documents submitted are associated with the appropriate IMR case quickly and with improved accuracy. 
Parties responding to the notice of assignment should include this barcoded sheet on the top of each document submission. An example of the barcoded sheet is posted online. The DWC will continue to post updates and notifications regarding improvements in the IMR system on the IMR updates page. The WCIRB released the California Workers' Compensation Aggregate Medical Payments Trends Report. The report compares medical payment transaction data from 2013 with the prior year 2012. This data represented more than 90% of the California insurance market and accounted for approximately $1.3 billion in payments annually. The use of specialist physicians, surgeons, and services for hospital and ambulatory surgical center services decreased, according to this report. At the same time, payments to general practitioners and occupational health providers increased. Payments to hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers also dropped, and office-based services increased. Pharmacy spending increased between the two years as well, but there was some good news. Payments for opiates slightly declined. The report is available in the Research and Analysis section of the WCIRB website. And another new WCIRB report shows improving, but still a difficult, California workers' compensation economic. The workers' compensation system in California is now more than 100 years old. It covers more than a half million employers and provides benefits to 800,000 injured workers annually. The report which the WCARB plans to update annually, summarizes the cost of workers' compensation insurance. It also contains a brief summary of how post-Senate Bill 863 costs are emerging compared to initial projections. The report concludes that insurer rates have been slowly increasing over the past five years, but are not significantly different from the rates charged in the 1970s. A steady, long-term decline in the frequency of claims has to some extent offset increasing medical and other costs. Yet rates charged in California have been markedly higher than rates charged in other states. The largest component of claims costs in California is medical treatment benefits. Claim frequency was 49 and a half claims per 1,000 employees per year back in 1991. There has been a steady decrease to only 14.2 claims per 1,000 employees per year in 2009. This has increased slightly to 16.6 claims per 1,000 employees per year, estimated now for 2014. Note that this slight increase coincided with the onset of the Great Recession. Geographically, the largest percentage increase during that period was in Los Angeles County, where claim frequency increased by 19%. Compare this to the Bay Area, which showed only a 3% decrease over the same time frame. California also led the nation in increased claim frequency during this period. Simply stated, Los Angeles County led the state that led the nation in workers' compensation claims frequency increases 
after the commencement of the Great Recession of 2008. California reported medical costs per claim are among the highest in the country, with an average cost more than 70% above the median level. Loss adjustment ratios are generally higher in California than for the average of other states. One reason is high litigation rates, especially in the Los Angeles area and a large number of active liens. The unexpected high frequency of IMRs conducted pursuant to SB 863 is also impacting loss adjustment expenses. With respect to SB 863, lien savings are emerging at a greater than expected level. However, indemnity claim frequency is emerging at a higher rate than projected. The overall long-term cost effects of SB 863 have yet to be fully determined. The California combined loss ratios are improving, but remain over 100%. In 2011, the loss ratio peaked at 119% and has now declined to 107%. Insurers can generate a profit with a combined ratio above 100%, providing there be favorable investment climates. However, long-term ratios above 110% are not sustainable. And in medical news, as weight loss becomes more about health than vanity, insurers might increasingly be footing the bill for non-surgical weight loss methods, and they will want to know which ones are the best investment. And such might be the case in California workers' compensation, where a weight loss program may be ordered as part of a treatment for a physical injury. Researchers reviewed randomized controlled trials the gold standard of medical research that evaluated non-surgical weight loss strategies over the last one year. They concluded that the popular Weight Watchers program and the drug Quisimia were the most cost-effective strategies to lose weight. Although Weight Watchers and Quisimia currently provide the best bang for the buck, Jenny Craig is the most effective. And in other news, each year, National Underwriters Excellence in Workers' Compensation Risk Management Award recognizes three business organizations with exemplary loss control, safety, and return-to-work programs. This year's winners are Amquip, Danos, and Iron Mountain. All three companies are being profiled in the special cover feature of National Underwriters' August issue and will be honored during the 69th Annual Workers' Compensation Educational Conference in Orlando, Florida. Amquip knows the secret to a successful workers' compensation program, zero injuries. The company rents out and operates nearly 700 cranes in 47 states to refineries, power plants, industrial and building construction sites. Eliminating injuries, however, was far from impossible, according to Jeffrey Hammonds, Vice President of Risk Management for the Philadelphia-based Crane Rental Provider. The right training and participation among employees, the company and its carriers greatly paid off. Amquip has averaged $46,000 a year in workers' compensation costs since 2009. 
Its workers' compensation budgets have been reduced by 15% each year. And the Danos culture of safety also yields a record number of incident reductions in often treacherous conditions. Danos provides contract labor services, construction and fabrication sandblasting, and painting services and consultants to the oil and gas industry worldwide. Danos operates in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico and Gulf Coast region, Texas, Wyoming, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and in several foreign countries. The work is inherently dangerous, particularly on work sites set over water such as oil rigs. Yet Danos has reached all-time lows in its total recordable incident rates at a time when the company's personnel, man-hours, and exposures have increased tremendously. When Jeffrey Smith joined the risk management team at Iron Mountain in 2008, it was clear that the company, Iron Mountain, required a sea change when it came to its workers' compensation program. At the largest records management company in the U.S., with operations in 35 countries, Iron Mountain employees face a number of on-the-job exposures. Employees at Iron Mountain pick up and store boxes of customer paper records, computer tapes, and media, and then return these records upon request. Boxes can easily weigh up to 80 pounds, and back and shoulder injuries are common. Iron Mountain set and achieved the goal of reducing their costs by half within five years. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.